Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. My podcasts often deal with distressing situations which are not suitable for children and some adults for that matter. Some of what I discuss may trigger uncomfortable emotions. If that does occur, please reach out to Lifeline, Beyond Blue or any other support service or person you feel comfortable with. It's also important to note that there's always two sides, sometimes more, to every story. My guests provide their recollection of an event or incident, sharing their thoughts and their emotions, but it's theirs and theirs alone. Not everyone will agree with them. I never want to tell any guest what to say or what not to say. So please try and keep that in mind. Today's podcast is my guest's version of events, and there'll always be others who see it differently. Hello, I'm Narelle Fraser. I was a cop with Victoria Police for 27 years, 15 of those as a detective, having dealt with all types of crime from a stolen bicycle to a stolen life. I witnessed the effect crime has on all those involved and became one of those victims myself in 2012 when I was diagnosed with PTSD. However, out of adversity comes other opportunities like this my own podcast. I still pinch myself, but thanks for listening and coming with me as we explore the human side and impact of crime. I think if anyone looked at me from the outside, they would not believe that I have a mental health condition because usually I'm bright and bubbly and personable. My guest today has a self-confessed uniform fetish. She hasn't worn them to dress up or theme parties as a dare or having had it suggested to maybe spice up a quiet night at home. Uh, Nothing quite so amusing, risque or fun. She's worn them the majority of her working life with over 30 years experience in the military, along with her time as an urban firefighter and an ambo. See what I mean about the uniform? Uh, Justine is a pretty amazing woman with an amazing story to tell, even though initially when I contacted her, she didn't think she was all that interesting. My goodness, I am not sure what she thinks interesting is, but I think you'll feel the same as I did once you hear the, uh, quote, uninteresting, boring, dull life, unquote, that she's had wearing those uniforms. Seriously, I'm thinking, you did what? You saw what? You helped save who? Wearing a uniform has responsibilities and often, particularly as a first responder, you begin to think that what you deal with daily is a normal life, but it's far from normal. Normal people don't see dead bodies constantly. They don't deal with traumatised people. They don't see horrific injuries. They don't deal with psych patients who are a danger not only to themselves but everyone around them. But they suffer hypervigilance 
to the point that they can't turn off. It's tiring. And Justine was no different. Well, sort of. She was able to return to work eventually, but it wasn't easy. It took lots of time, professional help, and a group of colleagues, family and friends who held her hand. They watched her like a hawk and helped her return to doing what she loved best, which was clearly wearing uniform. Uh, Justine's story is incredible, but as I said, it hasn't been easy. She's currently posted to Headquarters Forces Command and is a financial and personnel policy specialist. All I can say is how fortunate her team members are to have somebody like Justine looking over them, looking after them, and looking out for them. Just a a little bit of a warning today, we are going to be talking a little about suicide, so please decide whether today's podcast is suitable for you. So Justine, with that introduction, hello and welcome. Hi, Narelle. How are you going? I'm good. We've settled ourselves down. It was very funny for uh, our listeners. We uh, had a bit of trouble on the computer setting ourselves up and we were laughing, Justine and I were laughing about we can save lives, we can do all these things, but we cannot work <laughs> a simple computer. <laughs> but we got there, didn't we, Justine? <laughs> yeah, thank, thank goodness for Nick. But thank you for the introduction, Narelle. I, I'm just, I'm I'm pinching myself that I'm actually uh, on your podcast. I'm a massive fan um, and I think your messaging, um, you know, listening to your podcast and the ones you've done with um, ATC, the messaging is so important in terms of mental health and I know we're going to touch on that today, how important it is to to reach out and, and get the help you need. Uh, it certainly is, Justine, because not enough of us reach out and that's what I'm trying to um, uh, get out to the community and to probably more so the first responders because that's our passion, yours and mine. But uh, if you don't ask for help, uh, what happens is you can lose a career like I did. Um, you were fortunate enough not to lose a career and, uh, you know, sometimes... I, I kick myself that I didn't, but it was the stigma. That's what stopped me from seeking help and that's what we're trying to alleviate, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so where did this uniform fetish come from, Justine? It, <laughs> it does certainly sound a serious fetish you've got there. <laughs> I, and I haven't even mentioned to you my time, albeit brief, in the SES as well. So that's just another uniform. <laughs> but I've I've always been drawn to organisations, I guess, Narelle, that where you're assisting the community, you know, the work you're doing is helping others. Um, it, it's important work. And as we've spoken, you know, someone has to do that job. Someone someone has to be an AMBO, has to be a fiery you know, it has to be in the military because, um, you know, who, who's going to do it if people like yourself and I don't don't do that kind of work? So, I've always been drawn to to those organisations, and I tell you what, every morning it does make it easy when I'm at the wardrobe going, "What shall I wear today?" Ah, I'll wear my uniform. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 it's not that easy because mm, is it the SES uniform? Is it the military? What am I doing today? Is it the AMBO? See, you've still got choices. And and, and it's not all blue, is it? Uh, SES is what colours? 
Um, in New South Wales, they're orange, fluorescent orange. Oh, nice. Um, the one thing I'm missing is a is a police is a police uniform. So, well, it's not too late, Justine. Who knows? It's it's never too late. I'm just wondering about the shoes I'd be wearing with a bright orange uniform, although the shoes aren't really an issue, are they? They're always boring, um, sensible. Um, uh, well, actually, they'd be boots with what you wear, wouldn't they? Black, yeah, black boots that we'd, we'd have. So, yeah, so I've got so many old pairs of black boots in my wardrobe, it's not funny. But you're very trendy. Boots are very trendy. So you're, you're out they there. Are. You're up there. Yeah. Um, so in, in all seriousness, so what is it about a uniform that um, attracted you? Um, I mean, there's, there's a great deal of pride in wearing a uniform and representing an organisation living the values of the organisation, um, helping the organisation achieve their mission. So, I mean, I've been in the Army now for 31 years and uh, it gives me great pride to put that uniform on every day. Um, and just for the listeners, I've mostly been in the Army Reserve and then about eight years ago went full-time. So in being in the Army Reserve meant that I could don those other uniforms, which was um, urban, fiery, and um, and also an ambo. But and there's a, as you know, Narelle, there's a massive responsibility that comes with wearing a uniform as well. There is so, and we're held to to high expectations. So the community expects us to be exemplars, expects us to you know abide by the values of the organisation we represent. So it's it's really an honour to 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 wear a uniform and and you know represent the organisation and you know strip it all back. I, I just really enjoy helping people. Um, and I've been like that since I was a kid, always helping say the child in the playground who was crying or had fallen over. There was just something in me. And, and there's a family connection too with the military and also the fire brigade. So it's nice to think that I've been able to carry that legacy on as well. You know, you're right about having um, pride and it, it's you feel enormous pride putting on a uniform because that's one of the, um, one of the things I miss about being a policewoman I used to feel a bit of a tool, to be honest, but when I used to put on, we had this particular, um, oh, I can't remember the name of it now, but it was our formal jacket and we graduated in it and you wore it on special occasions and to go to court or to go to a funeral or something. And I must admit, I used to put on that that jacket and feel enormous pride, enormous pride because I think... Um, police all in uniform when it's all neat and tidy and looks all nice. I think it really looks impressive. Uh, I I couldn't agree more with the pride and honour, and it is an honour, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. Mm. So when we were talking a couple of weeks ago when we were preparing for today, you said that you feel um, fortunate in your military world that you've never been deployed overseas. Uh, you feel blessed almost that you haven't been exposed to some of the horrific sights and incidents many of your colleagues have. But trauma can manifest itself in many ways, can't it? In particular, I'm talking here about psychologically. 
psychological damage can be just as debilitating and traumatic as witnessing the actual incident. Uh, can you tell us about your time in the military and some of the um, those traumatic incidents that you've witnessed or how you managed with them psychologically? I suppose we might start with. So I haven't so much witnessed um, any traumatic incidents in the military, but I've worked with people who've deployed overseas and have witnessed that and they may or may not open up to you in regards to, you know, their experiences. But I've also helped people. um, I used to work for RSL New South Wales and I'd help people do their DVA claims, so Department of Veterans Affairs compensation claims, and we would get many clients through who were suffering severe psychological trauma. Many of them had been overseas, had seen a mate killed, um, and that that's with the contemporary force. I'd, I've helped Vietnam vets. I've helped World War II vets, um, and they talk about that same the same trauma and having lost mates and that kind of thing. And I guess after a while that uh, vicarious trauma starts to affect you because you're not physically and actually exposed to it but because you're hearing about it on a daily basis, if you're not careful, it can really impact your mental health so we had established, um, a, I think it was a one-hour meeting per week where we would sit down with our supervisor and just discuss any tricky cases or clients that we'd had during the week. So if something had cropped up that may have been a trigger for us, we could discuss it. And these the people we were discussing it with were qualified counsellors. So that was a way to manage that vicarious trauma piece. But it happens quite frequently. Um, So, yeah, it doesn't have to be that actual exposure, just hearing about something and, you know, you would have have experienced that yourself, Narelle, with the work you've done with Vic Pol in the past, just seeing things and hearing stories and reading stuff uh, can be enough to get you very unsettled. Uh, It does. and But what I've learned is that you can't help it but you tend to absorb a lot of that trauma and grief and sadness because, as you say, you join to help people. We want to help people. That's our um, our forte, I suppose. But to help people that are traumatised and to help people that are so um, psychologically damaged, it does uh, rub off on you. You can't help but feel um, empathy and I think uh, in the end, I absorbed it and couldn't. Um, I couldn't get rid of it. It just was like a sponge, I suppose, and it just kept filling up and filling up with that um, trauma and and grief, I suppose. But you talk about feeling blessed that you didn't um, that you weren't exposed, like you say some of your vets were. But my goodness, were they blessed to have you helping them? Because it sounds like you were just in the it was your forte helping people as you said that's what you wanted to do yeah I was it was interesting when that job actually came up and I was just drawn to it instantly because I knew I would have a connection with my clients because I was already serving so there was definitely a synergy there um 
And look, some clients I'm still in touch with, which is lovely. Um, you just like to know that they're doing okay. So, yeah, it was it, 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 that too is an important an important job because our vets need that support. So, yeah, they they certainly do, and it sounds like um, the ones that saw you were were very lucky. So, can you tell us about your time in the military? And you you've taken on some extra regimental duties. Um, can you tell us a bit about that? So, with um, being in the army, we or uh, well, being in the military, full stop. We assist families as best we can and we have a roster called the Notification Officer Roster and you're on that roster for a week so you do the Notification Officer training first and the intent there is if a serving member is in your area of operation, shall we say, in your locality, if they pass away and their next of kin is in the same locality, we will go and visit them. Um, So a notification officer and a chaplain will visit them to to advise them that we've we've received the information that their their loved one has passed away. Mm. Now, I did a couple of those rosters. I never had to do a notification, thank goodness, but I was on the roster several times. But what I found, Narelle, was, and I know we're going to talk about it shortly, but being on the roster actually triggered some stuff for me from when I was an AMBO and to the point where I actually had to ask to be removed from the from the roster because I was just becoming hypervigilant. I was very uneasy uh, to the point where I was actually feeling sick uh, dreading that the phone would go, you know, saying, well, you've got to go and do a notification. Um, so that that was quite, that that was sad because, again, I I like to support people and help people and I think that that is a very important role, but I I just, I knew I wouldn't be able to do it. So not, not without harm to myself. So that was, that was a bit of a turning point in actual fact to go and, seek some proper help. Mm. How, how long were you there before you realised that something, that it just it wasn't helping you, that there was something triggering you? How long did that take? So I'd been on the roster for two years, so but you only do a week at a time and like usually there's enough, enough people to sort of cover the roster, so you're only doing like one to two weeks a year. So I did two years on the roster, and then then I realised it just it, it was it was too much for me. So that's that's when I said yes, Justine, you've got to do something here because there's no there's no point feeling like this. Plus, I it sounds awful, but I needed to justify to my chain of command why I couldn't do it because you know you told get on the roster. But I just I couldn't do it. I mean, I volunteered to do other duties and other things, but that one is just one I can't I can't do. I wish I would have had that uh, foresight that you did, uh, Justine, because I pushed ahead and instead of thinking, oh, I don't mean to be a martyr or sound a martyr, but instead of thinking about myself, I thought about everybody else and. I think um, you can't help people if you 
aren't right yourself if if you're not strong enough or you know for whatever reason you can't do it it's you're of no use are you totally agree it's the it's the oxygen mask theory in rl you've got to put your own mask on in order to help others with theirs and often in these roles you you're too busy putting everyone else's oxygen mask on them and by this time the oxygen's run out and you're and and you've gone to pieces that is, that is a, a great explanation that I've never heard before. May, may I use may I use that? Yes, <laughs> in future. Yes, yes. and I, look. To be honest, I've 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 heard it a few times, and I think it applies so much to just life in general. So yeah, you're busy running around trying to make your bosses happy, your family happy, everyone happy, and and then yeah, you just fall down in a in a screaming heap. So with a notifications officer, so correct me if I'm wrong, but you would get all the information as to how um, your colleague has um, um, passed away overseas or wherever it be and that you take all that information and then you go out and visit the family and explain what's happened. Is that right? In a nutshell, yes. And then there's a chaplain with you as well. So, in a way, the person that, that who isn't the chaplain makes the notification, and then the chaplain steps in to provide that pastoral care. Because, in a way, if I'm turning up to someone's house and saying, and and you could relate to this again, Narelle, you're knocking on someone's door saying your loved one's passed away. Well, sadly, you know, because you're the bearer of bad news, you're. You know, you'll probably be forever remembered in that in that person's mind. So the chaplain then steps in and um, you know provides that pastoral support. And look, I guess it depends too on whether you know the person or not. Or yeah, you know, that's a really um, that's a really good idea. We didn't have that as um, police. They were, I'd have to say, probably the worst jobs in the police force. Um, a death message. But we did it ourselves. We didn't have somebody trained, you know, to deal with people's grief like a chaplain. That's a that's a great idea. Mm. Maybe you can take that to Vicpol. Well, I, I'd be surprised if they hadn't thought of it. But um, yeah, I don't know. Um, and so, is that why I was going? My next question was, why are you no longer doing it? So that is why it just got uh, too much for you. It got too much for me, yeah. Based based on a, a, an incident I attended as an AMBO, and I know we're going to talk about that shortly, but in that pertained to letting someone know that a loved one had died and just how traumatic that was for me. I just I could not bring myself to, to do it um, for, for Army, for work, because... And, and you would have done the same thing, Narelle, you, you know, I, I feel that I'd had my fair share of telling loved ones that their their family member had died and it's 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 just heartbreaking and I just I couldn't do it, just couldn't do it. So I think we might talk about that now because it makes, it, it sort of makes sense that you couldn't do it because it triggered um, an incident that you had attended as an AMBO because they all sort of work in together and you never forget these sort of incidents and the triggers come in all different phases. Um, it doesn't come uh, 
uh, in a you know nice um, timeline. I suppose I'm trying to say, but we might talk about that now. What was the trigger? What was it that you thought I couldn't deal with that again? So I, because of my uniform fetish, <laughs> I thought I would join uh, the ambulance service. So I joined and probably at around the six-month mark, I remember getting a call to a motor vehicle accident. So it was car versus two cyclists. Um, and this was my first trauma case. So I'd never been to a road trauma previously and got to the incident. We were the second arriving ambulance and, um, yeah, the, the bikes had been hit at high speed. Uh, one one person was uh, deceased. I was assisting the second patient uh, who was conscious but had, um, by memory, a, a leg fracture um, and been knocked about and naturally being being from the same family they're curious to know how their other family member is going so i looked up and i saw a white sheet pulled over the other patient so i knew that he was deceased i couldn't tell the patient that i was looking after that their family member had died because i felt that it was going to make it all the more difficult to manage the patient who had serious, you know, leg injuries and and scrapes and what have you. So when I was asked, I just said, uh, I'm I'm not sure um, how that person is going. I'll, you know, we'll be able to find out more once we get in the ambulance. So we loaded the the patient in the ambulance. We chuffed off, and again the questions were being asked, and. Again, I said, we'll be able to find out more when we get to the hospital. So I I knew very well that the family member was deceased and it was just terrible because I knew on one hand I was not telling her the truth, but I felt that that would have compromised her own situation, her own condition. And the link there with the notification officer piece was, yeah, that, well, really that, that, that inability I had to say to this person, your family member has died, was just carrying over into into the the army space and, you know, how would I actually go if I did have a notification? Like what if those couple of weeks I was on the roster and I had a notification? How would I really have gone? And I just, I, I just, I couldn't handle it. I kept... That whole that whole incident um, with the with the cyclists, to some degree, I probably buried that. And even though it took me some time, I was asked at the time, you know, do you want after the incident? Do you want counselling? Do you want help? The only person I wanted to talk to was my on um, on ambulance partner, and I wasn't actually able to see him for several days, and that. That made me quite distressed, but I only wanted to talk to a person who was there and who'd seen what happened. So that was my ambulance partner for the day. So, and I guess I just wanted to go over with that, my, my ambulance partner, go over what happened, you know, 
were the protocols that we follow correct? Um, but, you know, I think I would have mentioned it to him at the time because this is, this is going back about 10 or 11 years in a row. I think, I think if I did mention, I probably would have said to, to my ambulance partner that I, I couldn't tell the patient about their family member. I think that's one of those things that unless, unless you're in that position, unless you've done it, you, you couldn't really understand so even today, I still occasionally think of that, that I just couldn't, I couldn't be upfront with her and tell her the truth. But I'm just, when I look back, I just hope that that was just for her own good. And it was actually about her and more about her and less about me. Uh, um, I think that we all do things at the time and you look back and you think, hmm, maybe I could have done that differently. But I think we all have to accept that it's a very traumatic time. You've got um, one person deceased and the other person asking about them. And, you know, I don't know if I would have told them that the other family member had passed away either because it is going to send them into just so much more stress than they're in. And I don't know whether telling them, like you talk about the truth or the fact that I think, I do apologise if you didn't, but I think you said you lied because you knew they had died but you just couldn't say it. But I think that's not really a lie. It's really just protecting them. Would you agree that you're trying to protect them from further trauma? I do, I do. I've probably beaten myself up about it, but I, I do. It, it, I did it because I thought that it was going to be of benefit to the patient at the time. Absolutely. So, yeah. Um, it was almost like it was almost like an omission. So I just I, I didn't say that the patient was still living. I just said that you know, we'll find out more at the hospital or I'm not sure or yeah, yeah. that kind of thing. But yeah. But in hindsight, Justine, do you think that if that happened again tomorrow, I can't see that you would change how you dealt with that? Do you think you would? Do you think you would actually tell them they'd passed away? I'd probably do the same thing, Narelle, yeah. you know. That's what I mean. Really, if it- if it came to that, I mean, even if I was, say, walking up the shops and I saw something, you know, if I just came across that accident today, I'd do the same thing. Mm. Yeah, I, I just think you are protecting the person and what is it going to do by telling them there and then when they're um, being treated and they're, you know, I don't know about on a knife's edge, but they're certainly very ill they're very sick. They're, I mean, they're going in an ambulance to hospital. I just don't know what it would do by telling them, yes, he's passed away or she has passed away. Oh, look, I don't know. I don't think there's a right or a wrong. So how did your partner at the time deal with it? Did did he or she struggle as well? It was, it was hard to tell. So I was a trainee and the trainees got paired up with a qualified um, intensive care paramedic. So it was hard. It was hard to tell. It was just such a hectic scene. It was 
late afternoon, we stayed at the hospital beyond, you know, what would have been our usual knockoff time. Um, There was lots of paperwork to fill in. You know, on on that day, we didn't really get that chance to talk about it. And then I didn't see him. We weren't going to be working together. Um, We meant to be working together the next two nights and they... Um, they were on leave. So I didn't see him for several days. And I I recall ringing him saying, can we catch up? I'd really like to talk to you about this event. And he was very gracious and we met for a coffee and just went over things. And I felt so much better after that, Narelle, mm. um, because I knew that he saw what I saw um, I guess him being, you know, such an experienced paramedic and having been on the road a lot longer than I have, maybe it was something that he could, um, and I don't mean to sound flippant, but take in his stride because he'd seen, you know, many, many traumas, whereas that was my first trauma case. Yeah, yeah. So, but, but again, you know, you've talked, you've spoken about the bucket and the bucket fills up and overflows. I mean, you know, what's to say that the next trauma case he went to wasn't going to tip him over the edge, for example? You, you don't know. I was just thinking to myself, don't worry about the next case. It was very possibly that case that um, filled his bucket. We don't know. But I think sometimes because you're working with somebody so experienced uh, that they felt they had to show strength and they had to be strong for you. And I think there's only so many times you can um, be like that and be strong when underneath it all. I mean, I don't know, maybe he wasn't crumbling, but, you know, maybe he was. I think from what you've spoken about with, with that person, you know, my own view is was probably a tipping point, but we'll never know. Um, you told me, are you okay to go on? That's pretty hard, that sort of stuff. Are you okay? I am. Thank you for asking, but no, I'm good. Thank you. No worries. You told me about um, a distressing crime scene that you attended. Uh, I think this was when you were with the Ambos, was it? Yes, that's right. So this was a, an interesting scenario. We'd been called by the police to a house where the two occupants had attempted suicide. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. And they had run a hot bath. They had hopped inside and then they had cut their wrists. So we got called and as we arrived, the police mentioned to us that the two people in the house were actually the subject of a criminal investigation and their their case had been going through the courts. So they'd either just had a hearing or perhaps they were waiting for sentencing. Um, So they decided that they decided to to kill themselves. So they weren't successful because we got there. Um, but the scene was an absolute mess, absolute mess. 
And I don't know about you, Narelle, but you know how some things at a scene or a particular incident just stay with you? And I oh, yes. <laughs> remember yeah. the smell of blood. I'd been told what blood smells like, but you can you can say to someone, oh, you know, like see that tree over there, it smells like chocolate. Well, unless you smell it, you, you don't know. So someone had said, said to me, uh, blood in in a, a, in a large um, portion proportion smells like metal. It's got a metallic smell. And I remember stepping into this bathroom and thinking, oh, my gosh, whoever told me that was exactly right. The smell, it it just permeated your nose. It, 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 and it was just, you know, you're dealing with that, you're dealing with the volume of blood, you're dealing with these semi-conscious patients but I'll never, ever forget that smell, Narelle. It was just overwhelming. And, and so now when you smell that smell, I suppose, and it's in the community, I suppose, that smell, that metallic smell, it'll be somewhere, whether it be blood or something else, but it takes you right back, doesn't it? You can never forget it. Oh, absolutely. And that's what smell because. The, the sense of smell can trigger a lot of emotions. So, you know, I remember my grandmother's favourite perfume. When I smell that, I instantly think that she's standing right next to me. So, and it's funny because when I, um, you know, when, when you are out and about, like, I mean, you go into a butcher, that's not pleasant smelling. So, but it was an interesting case, Narelle, because, uh, we transported them in two separate ambulances, but again, you're faced with um, the fact that you've got someone in your ambulance who is potentially a criminal. So they've gone through the court system. I think they were just pending sentencing, and the crimes that they had um, been accused of committing were extremely serious crimes. So you've got yeah, a patient in the ba- in the back of your ambulance who you know has done or has been accused of doing something absolutely hideous, but you need to you know you needed to put all that aside so you can give them the medical treatment that they needed. So that that was a challenge, um, and you just you had to just put that aside. And when you think of it, over the years, many many medical staff and and first responders have had to do that um, in in terms of putting that putting that just to one side and just focusing on the patient and what their needs are. But, but that was a, that was quite a challenging case. Yeah, and you're right. When you know what somebody has done and let's say it um, it's revolting or whatever it be, in the end they still are, it's hard for other people to understand this, but they are still human beings. They need medical help. No matter what they've done, your job is to get them to a hospital, treat them, and to the best of your ability. It's bloody hard sometimes to put aside our inner feelings, but you just do, don't you? You have to. And 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 that's what being a professional first responder is um, is is putting that aside. Um, yeah, it, it's you know. You've got to put that judgment away because, you know, you, you see every single aspect of society when you're a first responder. 
and it's everything from um, the you know people who who barely have twenty cents to rub together through to wealthy people, but. At, you know, you would see the full gamut and you had to, like, leave your judgment back at the ambulance station and just go and help these people because, as you say, that they're, they're human beings and if I was in their situation, I'd that's how I would want to be treated. Mm. Yeah, and, you know, it's funny. They don't treat, they don't teach you how I've never been taught uh, in my 27 years as a policewoman, I was never taught how to put those feelings aside and treat them as a human being. It's just something that I don't know you can do or maybe others can't do it as well, but you aren't taught. It's not something I ever learned how to do that. No, and it's probably a hard thing to teach as well. That's what I'm thinking. How would you teach? Well, I suppose you teach people about empathy or about sympathy or whatever so um if it's not innate if it's not within you I suppose you have well you should learn it but um yeah as you say I don't know how you do um you're also a a fiery uh, again of course in uniform um is there a particular job you went to with that that stayed with you so because I love uniform so much, I I joined the local <laughs> fire station. So it's it was actually an urban fire station, but we, we were on call, and um and I absolutely love that job because the fire station was only three kilometres from home. So most of our jobs were in the local community. So you were you were helping your neighbours essentially, um, and I remember getting a call to a, a house not far from where mine was and um, I ha- hadn't actually met this neighbour so they were a couple of doors down and their cat had um, their cat had climbed up a tree and was stuck there. Oh, but please, no, don't. Oh, you, oh I'm st- really? Is that a real? I thought that was a furphy, somebody's cat up no, a tree. Really? No, we would get cats up a tree. Um, I remember we got a call oh. to... Uh, a person whose exotic bird had escaped and it was sitting on top of a telegraph pole. Um, But, I mean, animals have a mind of their own. So we're a bit limited as to sort of what we could do to to help them. But um, so, so it was really good working in the community and you got to know the community, which was really lovely. But I do remember being called to another motor vehicle accident that, Every time I walk, drive down this road, I always think of this poor girl. It was out of our area, so probably, you know, the next area across and absolutely senseless motor vehicle accident where someone has decided to overtake um, traffic and this poor girl was just minding her own business, driving the, in the opposite direction and just this person just drove straight into her and killed her. And I found out later, so we we got there a little bit later, so we probably would have been third arriving fire truck. So when we got there, the car had been wrapped in a green tarpaulin and what have you. So I felt really pleased that I didn't need to see a deceased person. But I found out through the media she was a girl my age, she lived not far from me, so like one or two suburbs across, 
Um, she had a husband and I just found it so devastating, Narelle, because she was just out on a weekend just driving somewhere and this person who was just far too impatient just decided to overtake without any care and um, and killed this girl. And we found out from the police he had a long standing criminal record, um, including traffic stuff. So just just seeing that senselessness, you know, that it was just so upsetting. And sadly you'd see it too often. Yeah, we do. We do. I I cut you off before when you were talking about the cat up the tree. Did something happen at that incident? Pardon me, I'm not a cat lover, so I I am doing my best to show empathy (laughs) and sympathy about the cat up the tree, but I'm rolling my eyes thinking, really? But was was there something else that I've cut you off to tell about that cat in the tree? Well, all I'll say about the cat and the exotic bird was so a lot of animals don't like water. So it was, <laughs> it was interesting how quickly they would get out of the tree. Well, thanks. I'll keep that in mind. You know, with the threat of perhaps being sprayed down by a oh, okay. by a hose, even a garden hose. And the thing is, animals get hungry. So, you know, the cat would have eventually come down, but, you know, the owner was quite worried about it. So... But, yeah, I mean, we, we get called to lots of animal rescues. So, and that would just be something different for a change, I suppose. So, yeah, that's true. Just to sort of, instead of going to a car accident with a poor young lady that's been killed by, yeah, pardon me, some dickhead who shouldn't be on the road anyway. Um, yes, you're right. It just sort of, and as police people too, you're right. It's those, it's those amusing sort of, uh, funny jobs that did keep us going, and you would um, laugh about them. For, well, we, you know, there are still jobs that I laugh about with my colleagues, but but that did keep us going. Those ones, and you're right, they're they're probably in there for a reason. You know that you've somebody's gone. You know their cats up the tree. Well, I'd think. Well, you know, here's twenty cents and ring somebody who cares. But um, then I'm. I can't be like that. <laughs> um, I was thinking of doing the cows, Narelle, the cows. <laughs> yes. I'm scared of cows. I'm not scared of cats. I'm scared of cows. I don't know what it is. But you've made me think, as well, if they're scared of water, hmm, just something to think about. I'm not sure where I live I have foxes. Ah. Uh. How do you reckon a fox would go with the water? Although I need a good hose. Yeah, anyway, you've given me something to think about. Um, <laughs> um, now, you actually at some stage, you went to the doctor and were diagnosed with PTSD. Can you tell me about that? So I, in the past, I've had a really great psychologist and I've got a really good psychiatrist and probably two years ago got referred by my GP to see a psychiatrist um, because I just felt I needed, I just needed some more help. And it had been, again, it's that um, effect where everything just builds up and up and up and, you know, if you're not talking to someone about it or, you know, you become a pressure cooker essentially. And oh, then, yes. And then it could be the smallest thing 
that tips you over the edge. Yep, yep. So I asked for a referral to see this psychiatrist. So that was about two years ago, but it was only this year during a visit that I'd mentioned about my time in the ambulance service and um, in particular that, that, that trauma case because I wanted to get it on the record for work for Army that, um, you know, there, there was a, a medical reason why I couldn't be on that notification officer roster. So we spoke and she said to me, come back because we'll need to go over this in greater detail. But she said, I'd say you've got PTSD, and, but it's just not being triggered at the moment. Um, but, I, you know, she said, I acknowledge what could possibly trigger it. So I was a little bit shocked. I, I don't know how you felt, Narelle, when you got your diagnosis, but I, I felt a little bit shocked. I, and I don't know why because... Again, like it, it's the way I look at mental health is so let's just say I was gardening and I slipped with the hedge trimmer and cut my arm and was bleeding profusely. I'm, I'm going to go and seek help for that. So I would take myself off to the doctor and get bandaged up and, and what have you. Mental health to me is exactly the same. And I'd say for some people, the injuries are probably more traumatic than having your arm sliced open by a garden tool. But yeah, so many people resist. So, yeah, I just it it took me a little while just to sort of process what what it meant by having that diagnosis. So, you know, I keep my regular visits up with her, and um, I've made you know I've made some progress in terms of my treatment, which is really good. Um, though, too, and I, I'm not sure what you would like what you were like, but. You know, I, I think if anyone looked at me from the outside, they would not believe that I have a mental health condition because usually I'm bright and bubbly and personable and, and, and happy and, again, always looking after others. So people pe- people wouldn't go, well, hang on, like, oh, geez, look at her. Um, though sometimes, again, we spoke about it earlier, that's sometimes to your own detriment because, yeah, making out everything's hunky-dory when in actual fact you're just crumbling on the inside. So, yeah, I, I, I'm at ease with that diagnosis. I think it's important that I know what, what triggers it and, and, and to avoid those triggers. Um, I have to say when I hear on the, the radio or the news that, you know, there's been an accident where cyclists have been involved, that it takes me back to that particular incident. But for the most part, I think I'm on, you know, well and truly on the road to recovery. What What were the signs, if you don't mind sharing them, and if you do, that's fine, but um, what were the signs that you decided a couple of years ago, I really need to go to the doctor because something wasn't right? So I think this may sound weird or some people might be able to relate to it, but I overeat. So when I'm stressed, anxious, that kind of thing, I turn to food. I know some people turn to alcohol, some others turn to drugs. But I would eat myself sick and as a result put on weight and I knew I, I, I knew what was happening. I, I was self-harming through food and, and I could see it but I couldn't stop it. So that 
that was a big trigger for me to go, right, you need to go and get some professional help. And I guess that feeling of just, you know, I'd often just feel flat all the time and it wouldn't matter. Again, it probably exacerbated by the fact that I'm putting on that persona that I'm happy and 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 healthy and helping others and that kind of thing, but just feeling flat, not wanting to do anything, happy to just stay in the house all day, like on weekends and things, not wanting to go out, maybe not wanting to be around people. But it's 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 no way to live. It really isn't. Uh, no, it isn't. But that's the way we um, shelter ourselves, I think, from more exposure to uh, triggers or to awful, you know, thoughts in your head and it's safer to stay at home so you don't have to talk to people. Like it's just I think it's you sound like a lot a lot like me. I'm very um, bright and bubbly as well and I think when people see that you're not, um, you feel like you have to explain and I didn't want to explain and, I well, I didn't know how to explain. I didn't know what was going on but I just, you know, wasn't myself. But it's funny, you know, you say that about um, hurting yourself with a garden tool or whatever. Like if somebody is curled up in the fetal position in a corner, you accept that somebody isn't right and they have a some sort of a they're having an episode or mentally they're unwell but when you have that oh what would you call it persona where you're bright and bubbly people if you're not curled up in a corner in the fetal position they you know people tend to think you're okay it's a hard thing to Except I, I found I took about 18 months to really accept that um, I was unwell and that was a bit like you say, like I can't have a mental illness. Like, God, I'm, I'm not like that. I'm fine. I've, yeah, it's, um, it's, a ve- it's a very hard thing to accept, but that's all about the community, us. That's not just everyone. It, it's me, my husband, family, your close, you know, friends and family. It's about everyone being educated better about mental health, isn't it? And it's okay to put your hand up and say, I'm not coping. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's, 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 there's no shame. And, and I, I feel having seen a psychologist and psychiatrist, like they were able to, without, telling me how to feel or telling me what to do or shaping me in any way. They just validated how I was feeling and and it sounds like a throwaway line and I know they don't mean it like that, but it's like, well, of course, anyone who's seen what you've seen, done what you've done would would feel that way. So I think that validation was important for me because it it – it normalised my own thoughts and feelings. So yeah, and so you were able to recover, and um, you remained at work. Uh, I've got to say, um, hand of my heart, it's probably the wrong word, but I feel a bit jealous or a bit envious that you could return to work because I couldn't, and oh, you know, I kick myself that I 
I wasn't strong like you were and thinking, just go to the doctor, there's something not quite right. I wish I had of because you are still doing what you love. I mean, I love doing, you know, it's funny where life takes you and I'm very, very happy doing what I'm doing now, but I'll tell you what, I'd do anything to still be a policewoman. <laughs> so how did you return to work? What was your recovery like? What did you do? Well, keep, keeping in mind that I'd like I'd left the ambulance service, so I was only in the ambulance service for a short time, so just under two two years, um, and then you know went on to um, do army full time a few years later, and just had odd jobs in between. But so I'll be honest, Narelle, there's no way I could have gone back to being an ambo or fiery. Okay. So mm. yeah, so shifting from part time army to full time army. It was possible, but that's I see that as a completely different role to when I was a first responder, you know, Ambo and Fiery. So, so I I couldn't have gone back. Um, so I've been lucky that I've so in a way I've done what you've done, like found a new vocation, which is and when I say new, even though I've been in the army for thirty one years, it, you know, I've gone from you know part time army reserve into full time army. Mm. I guess you've a door has opened for you, and you're doing you you're messaging through your podcast and what have you. But I I couldn't have gone back to being an ambo, no way in the world, no. Um, if I had to, you know, obviously if I saw someone in the street needing first aid and assistance, I'd be able to provide that. But I I couldn't have gone back. So. Um, yeah, look, I, I don't know. I guess I guess everyone's everyone's different. Everyone's tipping points different in terms of when you feel you need to or can ask for help. Um, you know, coming to that decision point in its own, saying I think something's not right, and and you were able to do that, and I was able to do that. You know, and this was the thing we'd say in the ambulance all the time. The ambulance service was like. You know your own body. You you know your own self. You know when something isn't right. Mm. So that in itself is a massive step because you don't want to believe that you're not um, that you're not healthy and that and that something's amiss. So even I think even if I'd stayed in the ambulance service, I I don't think I would have been a long termer. I think it would have just been too probably would have been too much for me. I think Narelle. So yeah, look, I, I, I've just seized a new opportunity, I suppose, and um, and and tried to make the most of it. And yeah, like I'm, you know, absolutely loving my my job in the army at the moment. So and we've done some amazing things in the last twelve months, helping the the community with the bushfires and COVID and the floods and what have you. So that's very rewarding being in an organisation where you know that you're helping. Um, you know, your country, it's fantastic. So, And I suppose also, well, I think the main thing there is that what you're saying is that it's so important and what I'm saying too is that it's so important to seek professional help because there's only so much you can do to help yourself and I think you need professionals to um, help you deal with what has happened and 
how you know teach you the tools to manage those situations to manage the triggers so that you can you know lead a, a normal life again i mean you can't unsee it's a fairly typical thing isn't it uh, I, you cannot unsee what you've seen but professional help you will help you deal with it um i suppose uh we might have to finish up but i thought we might finish up on a bit of a lighter note and um, you did tell me some some of the lighter moments you've had in um, your career, um, particularly with the – I thought we might – there's a, a number that you told me, but there was two very amusing ones. One was with an ambulance and the other one was with an elderly barrister. <laughs> I thought you might just share those with us and uh, – <laughs> We'll finish on a light note. I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So picture this. It's it's a dark, rainy night, I think in the middle of winter. We've been called to a patient in a, in a, a suburban house. I couldn't see. It was on a corner block and I couldn't see that there was a gutter and an obvious driveway. So I just drove the ambulance onto their front lawn and anyway we retrieved the patient popped them in the ambulance to take them to the nearest hospital and when we went to drive off and I was driving not treating I couldn't move the ambulance because um, it had been so wet and rainy the ambulance was actually bogged in their front uh, yard so I spoke to my ambulance partner and said look this is what's happened and I was told in no uncertain terms well you can either Radio through to comms <laughs> so everyone hears that you've yeah. bogged the ambulance Yes, or you can call them on your mobile phone and then ask if the fireys can come up and, uh, and dig you out. So the fireys turned up. We left the patient in the car and yeah. um, the fireys came up and dug us out and, and off we drove. But I didn't live that down for weeks and weeks and weeks and then found out, you know, I mean, talking to others, They'd all had similar cases where they've bogged ambulances <laughs> on sports fields and stuff like that. So yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Trick, trick for new players. Yeah, don't park on people's front lawns. <laughs> no, I would no. You park on the front lawn, but if you do get bogged, never ever admit it over the radio and go around the back way, uh, as in you know you ring the uh, fireys. Hey, can you come and help me? You'd, as you say, you'd never let anyone know that because, yes, you would never let it down. I had a similar situation with a um, a cow. To, anyway, it doesn't matter now. But I, from that moment on, embarrassing. Everyone knew what had happened, and I was called cowgirl. So it and it stayed. So um, yes, I, I get that. Now also there was. Um, oh, I do like the. The man on the bus, fantastic. This poor fellow, it was a Friday night, he'd been drinking with his mates and he'd fallen off the bus and cracked his head. So we got called and when we arrived where the bus was, the bus driver had told us that the man who just lived around the corner um, said he was okay and, and walked home, but the bus driver had said he'd cracked his head and he was bleeding. And So we wandered around to this man's address and the lights were on in the house and we're knocking on the front door, nothing, go around to the back door, nothing, go back out the front. And I said to my ambulance partner, I'll just go around the back one more time. And I've walked around the back 
and just having one more look, peering through windows and what have you. And all of a sudden I see this foot stick out of this garden bed and it gave me such a shock and a real I screamed. And um, anyway, my ambulance partner came running out the back and we got this poor fellow up and he had this massive gash on his head and he'd been in town drinking with his mates and um, he'd, yeah, fallen off the bus. Anyway, we got him up and when someone cracks their head and they're conscious like that, you do a bit of a mini mental, you know, like what day is it today? And anyway, I asked him who the Prime Minister of Australia was and he said, what do you mean who is the Prime Minister of Australia? You should know who the Prime Minister of Australia is. <laughs> and I was so taken aback. And um, But he, he refused to come to the hospital with us and we said, look, because of your state, we've got we've got no choice and if you don't come with us voluntarily, we're going to need to call the police. Well, he sprung out of that garden bed like nobody's business and almost <laughs> ran to the ambulance and... Um, I don't know. Sometimes you'll follow up on a patient. I don't actually know what happened to him. I dare say he's still living, still enjoying his Friday night drinks with his yeah. legal friends and and yeah. what have you. So yeah, those kind of jobs just sort of balanced out the the really the the grim and the sad ones. So, but but the reason that he didn't want to be a, um, the police to come round was because he, yeah he 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 was. He was a barrister. <laughs> yeah, he was a retired barrister, but he may have, I suspect he may have still been practising. Oh, right. So to, to just maybe on a part-time basis. So he, I don't think he wanted a little black mark against his name. So when we said police, yeah, he, <laughs> he just jumped out of that garden um, quicker than I could have, to be honest. Yeah. So, um, yeah, apparently, yeah. Uh, apparently barristers and the legal fraternity have a few drinks. Hmm. Yes. Which surprises me that you'd have a barrister that was legless of a Friday night. Yes. With all due respect to our um, <laughs> legal friends. Well, look, Justine, thank you so much for sharing so much. Uh, I hope you're okay. Um, make sure you are because telling you. these sort of things is, um, is not easy bringing them all up again. But um, I'm sure that people out there will have taken away a lot from today and what I think the main thing is that um, don't put your head in the sand. Do something if you don't feel like you're managing. If you're not, um, if you're not travelling too well, we all know that. As that your somebody said to you, we all know our own bodies, um, and you're not Superman or Superwoman. Do something, you know. Absolutely. But thanks, Narelle. Thanks for letting me share today. I, I so love your podcast. I think you, you're doing such important work and I suspect, uh, like I have in the past, where I've, um, I suppose, grieved for a career that didn't go where I wanted it to, so when I was a first responder. But I'd argue, Narelle, the work you're doing now is as important, if not more important, than what you were doing when you were policing because the, the messaging is its just so vital and I do hope your listeners do take something away if, if they're not feeling 100%. But please, for as long as you can, Narelle, please do the podcast. I absolutely love them and I know <laughs> the fellow listeners do. And, um, yeah, very important, very um, the key messages are amazing. So, Love your work. 
Thank you, Justine. And just for the listeners, I had no idea that Justine was going to say that. <laughs> but I'll pass you the 50 bucks later. Thank No, I shouldn't, <laughs> I shouldn't make fun of it because um, I do feel there is a message getting out there and I hope that people um, do take away um, the messages that um, we don't mean to put out. All we want to do is highlight the the messages, you know, about mental health and about first responders and to give them a bit of a break because they get a bit of a hammering every now and then. So anyway, thanks, Justine. And you keep listening. I will. Thanks, Narelle. All right. Thank you, Justine. Hey, it's Narelle here again. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy the podcasts as much as we enjoy putting them together. But to make sure you never miss an episode of Narelle Fraser Interviews, hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a rating and even a review. And please share it with all your friends too. And again, thanks for joining us. We have got some amazing stories to tell. So thanks again. See ya.